Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. My guest this week is Derek Chalet. I will go through his resume with you later. Uh, initially, this conversation was going to be a, a big wrap-up of Trump's trip to the G20, but today is Russia madness all the time. So we started there, Don Jr.'s uh, meetings uh, with uh, Russian lawyers and other officials trying to gather dirt on Hillary. Uh, and then we got into the ongoing military effort against ISIS in Mosul, what's happening in Syria, and the Trump administration's plans for Afghanistan. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to focus on these hugely important issues like ISIS, Iraq, Syria, when all this madness is in the news. But Derek gave us a great perspective on both. So check it out. With me this week on Pod Save the World is Derek Chalet. Derek was, uh, from 2012 to 15, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. That means he dealt with defense policy towards Europe. That includes NATO, the Middle East, Africa, and the entire Western Hemisphere. So big uh, big job there. Uh, before joining the Pentagon, Derek was at the White House as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Strategic Planning on the National Security Staff. And before that, he was uh, Deputy Director of Secretary Hillary Clinton's Policy Planning Staff and a member of the Obama-Biden transition team. Derek, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me today, man. I appreciate it. It's great to be here, Tommy. So, of course, as usual, what happens with the show is I pitch you on one idea, which was like, let's do a Trump trip wrap up. And right. then the news cycle explodes 85 times over, uh, including our boy Don Jr. sending some um, probably troubling emails uh, to some Russian counterparts. So I figured we would we would start there instead, just because I hope you can help us make sense of this, given your expertise in defense. Yeah, and let's just go right to the pain. <laughs> let's go. Okay. <laughs> so after months of denials by the Trump administration that there was any contact with Russian officials during the campaign, it came out today that Donald Trump Jr. took a meeting with a Russian lawyer after being promised information that, quote, would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia and would be very useful to your father. They added, this is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but it is part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump feels pretty bad. Um, this is brand new. You know, it's it, it's hard for me to get my bearings when I read things like that. But I'm wondering, you know, to begin, what do you make of all this? Well, I mean, it's, it's it is it's hard to get your bearings. I mean, it's it's pretty shocking, yes. to be honest. I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's because it's not just that uh, he was meeting with individuals who happened to be Russian, right? I mean, yeah. I think we, we, that was clear. The way the story's evolved in the last 72 hours has been a little head spinning. But oh, yeah. It went from, okay, he met with some Russians, uh, unclear whether they were, kind of how they were connected to the government or not, to then what we have now is black and white, clear as day evidence that he was, un- it was his understanding he was going to meet individuals who had Russian government information mm-hmm. that could be provided to him uh, that would be damaging to Clinton. And, uh, I think for many of us who've been watching this unfold over the last several months or more, almost a year now, actually, from when these first allegations first arose, there's there's at least an assumption of unwitting collusion, meaning right. that perhaps people around the Trump organization or as part of the Trump organization met with folks who maybe unwittingly were on were working on behalf of the Russians, and there was collusion there, but. There's no ambiguity based on this email chain that was released to, uh, about you know who was doing what on whose behalf. I mean, it says this is Russians, Russian government officials, yeah. Russian government lawyer, even is the way this person was described. So it's pretty pretty startling. I mean, this is something in any. I mean, Tommy and I, Tommy, you and I have worked on campaigns before. Right. You know, 
uh, you know, what the, what the Trump guys are trying to say is, that, look, Oppo research, this is nothing new. You know, this is what happens all the time. I mean, if, if first of all, I, I've never been even, you know, directly or, or even heard of a foreign government trying to provide this kind of information. And if that ever had occurred in any campaign I'd been a part of, you know, one of the first calls you'd make is to the FBI to say something extremely fishy is going on here. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, your your point about the sort of unwitting collusion, I think for a while people thought, well, maybe sort of bumbling Carter Page accidentally got, exactly. had took meetings with the wrong people or or shady uh, Paul Manafort, you know, tried to make a quick buck with with the wrong people in Ukraine. This is... This is very witting. And, and to your point earlier about opposition research, absolutely opposition research is standard operating procedure in any campaign. That said, I mean, I remember in 2008, there were bright lines drawn by Barack Obama, David Pluff, David Axelrod, the senior people yep. in the campaign about what we would and would not look into or talk about or use. Um, and you would think that foreign government information would be part of that, would be, uh, you know, on, uh, firmly on the wrong side of that line. But, you know, you, so you worked in government, you did a bunch of campaigns, you were a foreign policy expert. I mean, did you have foreign officials trying to take meetings with you during Carrie Edwards or any other campaigns? And, and did you have those conversations? Like, how did you draw the line between gathering information to get policy, to build policies, um, or you know, while preventing sort of inappropriate conversations. Yeah, no, it's, and this is, and I think what's happening as a result of this, particularly because the Trump, the Trump people or their supporters are trying to kind of, kind of throw a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, of kind of chaff up into the, up into the air to mm-hmm. kind of distract us from what's going on. And it, cause it's absolutely true that campaign officials will have, interactions with foreign government officials most more likely it's you know folks based here in Washington here at US embassies or at their embassies here in Washington or uh, perhaps if a if a foreign official foreign officials are traveling in the United States uh, at that time and they'll reach out to the camp to the foreign policy advisors of the campaign to understand the campaign's position on issues uh, you know it, you know obviously they want to try to establish relationships thinking that if these people win, then, of course, those folks could be in positions inside the government. Right. Um, so my experience is, yes, there was interaction with foreign governments. Uh, it typically, though, were, in my experience, were interactions with governments that were friendly to us. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, it's not uncommon to have a, you know, talk to the Brits or talk to the French or talk to the Japanese or the Koreans or mm-hmm. longstanding allies pretty unusual and i don't recall any situation that i was a part of where we would talk to the russians for yeah. example um yeah. so uh you know yes it's true that that campaigns will interact with foreign governments but but not foreign governments that are seeking to undermine our election for sure yeah that's uh, a that's good very point unusual <laughs> that's a good point right you see a lot of campaign trips to israel or yeah, the uk that's and, and again, those tend to be more informational exchanges. It's, I mean, certainly nothing, nothing of what we're seeing right now, not even close of this, you know, I've got some information that is going to undermine your opponent. Um, nothing of that nature. It's more, you know, what is your candidate's position on, you know, issue X, Y, Z that I care about? Or let me, as a foreign government official, tell you about our position on policy mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. Yeah. 
And uh, typically those are handled, I mean, for the most part, I think on both sides, Republican and Democrat in past elections responsibly. And, and oftentimes these are relationships that one may carry, have, you know, made outside of government or, you know, folks, for those of us who had served in government before, perhaps people you had interacted with before. Um, so, you know, we don't want to, in, in criticizing what's happening to Trump, you don't want to sort of paint with too broad of a brush, meaning saying that so forever, you know, campaigns would never interact with foreigners. That's not, that's not smart. But, but what's <laughs> happened here is just so beyond the pale. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it's just, a, it's just a total, it's not an apples, apple, apples and oranges comparison. It's an apple and some, the, you know, some totally different comparison. It, it's so funny listening to a reasonable person like yourself try to be charitable to them because I do right. this too. It's like, it's like I struggle it, so mightily. Well, I mean, it's just that yeah. shit crazy. Yeah. It is. It's just. It is indeed. Okay. Last question for you on this. You, you did yeah. a lot of work at the Pentagon on policy towards Europe, policy towards NATO, yeah. which is of extreme acute interest to the Russian government. Um, mm-hmm. They would likely collect on someone in your position, yep. uh, their military, their intelligence services. Yep. I'm guessing you got your fair share of counterintel briefings. I mean, what, what's your sort of, without any real knowledge beyond what we've both read, uh, you know, take on the uh, tactic here? Is, is sort of running an intermediary like this, an acquaintance of Trump's, a lawyer, to launder Russian government information? Does that sound like something that would be a known tactic or something we would watch out for? Yeah, it sounds very plausible. Um, again, not knowing the specifics of what was going on in this case beyond what we've all just been reading uh, over the last, you know, it's been been released here. But it, it absolutely, I mean, look, Putin has shown whether it's in specific intelligence operations or in situations like uh, his his invasion of Ukraine several years ago, which he uses cutouts, he uses inter- intermediaries. He tries to throw up enough ambiguity that he can claim that he has nothing to do with it, right? And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, even though the facts show otherwise, he can have plausible deniability. Right. Um, so I'm sure in this instance, I have not seen the Russian government's reaction to uh, the release of, of of this information about Donald Trump Jr. today. They've reacted in the past on 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 this about you know denying anything, but I assume they'll say, look, we had nothing to do with any of this. These were just folks who, you know, weren't part of the government. They weren't they were not formal officials uh, purporting to have this information. We had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I don't believe that. Um, and it's sort of like when Trump last week talked to you know had this meeting with Putin uh, in Germany and said, you know, we talked about this Rus- the Russian interference question and, you know, we're moving on. I mean, the, of the people in that room, and there were only, there were six of them, two of them were interpreters and four, Tillerson, Trump, Putin, and Lav- Lavrov, the foreign mm-hmm. minister. I mean, other than the interpreters, no one in that room has any credibility on the Russian hacking issue. Right. So, right. so you know, we shouldn't believe anybody what they're saying about that of, of the four, the four folks in that room. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I, I don't know how I, I don't know how as a reporter you bother going to a briefing you quote these denials anymore. I mean, they just right. shredded their I mean, credibility. But yeah, more nerdy foreign policy coming up on Pod Save the World. Yeah. 
So the other huge event in the news uh, the past few days in this week is is the recapturing of Mosul. The Iraqi Prime Minister al-Abadi declared recently that Mosul had been recaptured from ISIS. Um, the images out of Mosul are are stark. I mean, the yeah, city it's like Dresden. Is, yeah, it's Dresden, Terrible. which yeah. was you know bombed to smithereens in World War II. Yeah. It is it's flattened. The human suffering is unbelievable. But um, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the significance of this military success against ISIS. Well, uh, this is a watershed moment, and it's one that, just to kind of bring people back in time, I mean, it was three years ago uh, this summer when uh, ISIS first uh, took Mosul mm-hmm. and um, you know, began the, the, the quick march towards Baghdad, and I was serving in the Pentagon at the time, and yeah. it was a, a, a harrowing moment where for for a period of time, we thought we were watching Iraq unravel completely because uh, Mosul's a major city in Iraq, major city in, uh, and the, the fact that ISIS had taken that over relatively easily at the time was was quite alarming. Um, Can you just talk I about that for one second, Derek? Yeah. Because basically the Iraqi security forces, after you know a decade plus of training and equipment uh, from the United States, just, just turned Melted and ran, away, right? Yeah. Basically. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that, uh, that... You know, the U.S., after withdrawing from Iraq in 2011, um, which was something the Iraqis wanted us to do, was to withdraw. Uh, They, uh, you know, they did not have the, they did, for several years, they didn't have the United States by their side helping them stay, stay trained up. And then also the leadership of Iraq after we withdrew in 2011 was very sectarian, so sort of played on the differences of the people with, of Iraq, particularly between Sunni and Shia. And as a result, we had a, a kind of a, an, an atrophy of the of the Iraqi security forces, which then, when they were when ISIS uh, uh, rose up and and went into Mosul, they basically just folded right. like a house of cards. Right. So, so that's when the beginning of the ISIS campaign started three years ago this summer. I think it's also really important for your listeners to remember that when President Obama. Uh, started this campaign, this military campaign three years ago, he made very clear uh, at the time that this was going to be, uh, we, ultimately we would, we would win militarily. Uh, we would be able to have the kind of success we've seen in Mosul today, but it was going to take time. Yeah. In fact, he said it would take about two to three years. And guess what? It took about two to three years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was interesting. I was, I was reflecting back on this. It was two years ago, almost to the day, you know, uh, right after July 4th, 2015, President Obama went to the Pentagon for a briefing of his senior military leadership uh, on the on the progress in the ISIS campaign, and then uh, delivered a, a public speech at the Pentagon, an update on the ISIL campaign. And he made very clear in that statement, he, he talked mainly about the progress that the United States and its partners had been making in Iraq and Syria against ISIS, saying that was, we had a long way to go militarily, but that we were making steady progress. But he made very clear that no amount of military force uh, was going to end the terror that uh, that is ISIS, mm-hmm. um, that unless it was matched by a broader effort and in politi- the, the political and economic uh, 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 questions that uh, really address the underlying conditions that created ISIS, and that's now where we find ourselves. Right. Was that briefing in the tank, Derek? Uh, the briefing itself was in. It was not in the tank, which is where the the Joint Chiefs. Um, 
that's their conference room. It was in the Secretary's conference room and then Secretary of Defense's conference room. And then he gave a public uh, statement, I believe, in the in the Pentagon press room. Yeah, I just your your listeners should just Google Obama ISIS July yeah. 2015, and you'll see his full speech. Um, I just wanted to name check the tank because it was just the, the coolest name for a conference yeah. room I think ever. I mean, for those of, I'm not sure why it's special. For those of you who've never been in the tank, you go in there. It's not it's really. It's just a conference room. It doesn't. It doesn't look anything like a tank. It's like the Situation but, uh, Room, right? The Situation Room is three or four actually different rooms. Three or f- exactly, exactly that are just secure facilities where you can e- you do a exactly. video conference. But anyway, <laughs> but I mean, so I think you know what's interesting. I mean, you know, the Trump the, the, or. The, What's happened in Mosul in the last few days has nothing to do with Donald Trump, to be clear. I mean, this, is, this was the military campaign that had been designed and, and begun under President Obama that, that the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, uh, Secretary Mattis, has continued, continued with uh, in the first seven months of this year. Um, and we, we actually, I mean, I remember at the very beginning when, we, when that's, when this military plan was being developed, we knew that we would eventually come to this day, that the, eventually just given the capability of the United States and our efforts working with our partners, that we would take back Mosul. Mm-hmm. It would be a long, hard fight, but it would happen. But the question is, what comes next? Right. And this is where it has been deafening silence coming out of the Trump administration. It's unclear that they have any plan uh, of what to do. This is something that was acutely on the Obama administration's mind as it was leaving office, knowing that we were going to get to this point where we would be able to militarily liberate these places. But then what comes next is the hard work and the, and the significant resources that are going to be required to stabilize what's, uh, what are devastated uh, cities and towns in Iraq. Um, and this is where we're going to need strong diplomacy, and unfortunately we're getting the opposite of that right now. We're going to need affected development experts, and we're going to need international unity. And right now we're falling short on all three. So staying with Iraq, I mean, at least there's a government, right? At least there's someone we can work with, unlike Syria, right. where it's Assad and, and, yep, and ISIS exactly. sort of dividing yep. the place up. What would you recommend that the Trump administration do in Syria over the next six, 12 months? I'm sorry, in, in Iraq. In Iraq. Well, I mean, look, the key is is to continue to ensure that with our military trainers, and it's important again for your listeners to remember what the U.S. has been doing in Iraq is is direct military action, mainly through airstrikes and then some special forces work. But mainly, we're training and equipping the Iraqi security forces. So, the liberation of Mosul was done by Iraqi troops with our support, with our U.S. air power, U.S. intelligence, um, U.S. equipment in many cases. But it was the Iraqis actually on the ground doing the work. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to continue to work with them, assuming they're the Iraqis, and I, they do want us to continue to work with them, but to main, make, make sure that, that they are, you know, have the capabilities that they need to, uh, to stabilize uh, these, these, these parts of Iraq that have been liberated. And then also to help lead the world, which, again, uh, we're not, I'm not very confident we're going to do this, but we've got to help lead the world in, a, in what is going to be a massive effort that's required to help stabilize these places. Um, it's going to require probably, you know, I think the recent estimates I've seen, it's three-quarters of, a, of, of, of uh, or oh, nearly a billion dollars in, in reconstruction support that's required. Um, again, a lot of political development uh, mm-hmm. support, 
And, you know, we all, when the ISIS, again, going back to when the ISIS campaign started, we knew that, that we would be able to break the back of the Islamic State because actually states, taking down states is something the U.S. military has shown multiple times that it's capable of doing in the last right. 15 years. If you're holding right? territory, we can figure out a way. Right, you're right, you're right. Dry, you know, cutting off the finances, taking guys off the battlefield, you know, taking down the leadership structure. Um, we can take down states. The challenge for us is when ISIS goes back to being an insurgency, mm-hmm. which is where we are now. Right. Um, and that's a harder that's a harder problem to try to tackle. And it's going to, it's not, it's not something the U S there's easy answers to at all. Um, the problem is again, we just, we are, we are kind of undercutting the tools that we have to try to get at that part of the problem by what this administration's done just in only six months in office. So, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I agree. It's like in a, weird way this was the easy part and easy is by no means easy right but your right. point about the longer term commitment and what it'll take to get Iraq to a place that's self-sustaining and, and safe for the people who live there is you know it, it, I saw something by David Petraeus who was talking about our commitment to Afghanistan the other day yep. and he drew a comparison to Korea where we've been for decades yep. and we have 20,500 troops there since 1953 so I mean have we all been thinking about Iraq wrong for the last five, 10 years? I mean, was, was thinking we needed a time frame for withdrawal um, and, and capacity building for these forces um, just naive? Or, you know, is Petraeus right about that time frame? Like, what, wh- how do you look at this now, having well, worked on this yeah, for so long? Yeah, it's a really long? good question. I mean, and, and you know, Iraq is, a, is, is obviously, each, case, each of these cases kind of you have to take on their own. And Iraq you know, the story of, of our withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, and then the, 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 the reintroduction of U.S. military forces into Iraq in 2014 has been highly litigated. It's important, I think, that to, for people to remember that the Iraqis uh, have a vote here, and they, they were um, willing to see us leave in 2011. Right. right. They they had been through a searing experience clearly in the, in the uh what had happened in the previous decade. Um and it's actually a different story in Afghanistan where the US has been in Afghanistan of course since 2001. Uh and um we still have north of 10,000 troops there. We're adding it looks about to be around 4,000 more. Right. Uh and I know we're going to get to Afghanistan in a bit a little more but but you know, we're, look back. We've if anyone in 2011 or 2001 had said U.S. troops are going to be in Afghanistan for the next uh, 16 years plus, because I mean, I don't think I don't see them leaving anytime soon. We're starting to look a little bit like Korea, right? Yeah. Now, different circumstance. Afghanistan is a pretty pretty tough terrain uh, and far more dangerous than Korea was in the 50s and 60s um, in terms of day to day life for our folks out there deployed, but. Um, I think these these sorts of long-term investments are ones that we we should be prepared to make. But it is also important that we have partners on the ground, and I think this was a this is a key kind of thing to keep in mind, which is in both cases now in Afghanistan and Iraq, we have governments who want us there, who want to work with us, who want our help, uh, and that's that's critical to success. And I think what we found ourselves in 2011, and I was part of the decisions. Uh, that were taken about our withdrawal troops is we had an Iraqi government at the time 
that was more than happy for us to leave and really didn't want us to stay. And that seemed like a recipe for disaster as well. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Turning quickly to Syria, during the uh, President Trump's bilateral meeting with uh, President Putin, he announced a ceasefire in, in southwestern Syria. So far, that ceasefire appears to be holding. There have been any number of unsuccessful ceasefire efforts in Syria. Secretary Kerry brokered a number of them that just didn't hold. Yeah. Um, this one seems unique in that Russia is driving it. What do you make of this effort? Um, do you think that there's a hope here that this could improve the situation on the ground? Yeah, look, there's a hope. I mean, one has to, to always hope. You're right to point out, though, that we have seen many ceasefires come and go over the course of the last six years in Syria. Uh, this, because it's of, of, of where it is, uh, the role that Russia's playing, uh, uh, in particular, that this could be different. Um, you know, this is a part of Syria that, uh, in the southwest part, where it's pretty far from the fighting that we've been most engaged in uh, in, in eastern Syria mm-hmm. uh, and the northern part of Syria, where Aleppo uh, uh, is. And it's, it's part of Syria that there's been a lot of con- focus on recently because our Jordanian partners who were part of this agreement are very focused on, the, on what's happening in the southwest part of Syria. Our Israeli friends are very nervous about what's going on in that part of Syria because that's the part of Syria that's adjacent to Israel. So... There's a lot of fat, there's a lot of players um, who want to see this ceasefire succeed. There's a concern about uh, Iran using this part of Syria as uh, gaining influence in this part of Syria. So, you know, it's been what I think 24 hours or a little over 24 hours since the ceasefire took effect, uh, as we're talking today. Um, so I'm hopeful, uh, but I'm not confident. Yeah. Uh, this is this is. It's a it's a pretty tricky um, deal, and uh, there's been some reporting about you know, the U.S. military not fully, um, you know, kind of being, you know, kind of being caught surprised by some elements of the ceasefire. So it's, I'm, I'm unclear what's what's happened there. Yeah, you're uh, being very generous. By the way, I don't think this was something that was much discussed by Trump and Putin. I think a lot of the work was being done at lower levels over the past several weeks, and this was one of these things they saved for the Putin-Trump meeting to be able to announce as a deliverable. Got it. Yeah. You're being very generous. Uh, according to BuzzFeed, the U.S. military had received no guidance on how to enforce the ceasefire, um, <laughs> even as they were talking about this as a success. But that's, I mean, the other thing is, I don't think we're really operating much there. Is, right. I mean, most of where the U.S. military is operating, if folks look at a map of Syria, is more kind of at the central and the eastern part, not the southwestern part. So, Got it. I mean... Is the heavy lifting here to get the Russian buy-in, or and we shouldn't worry as much about the execution, or how do you view this? Uh, well, I think I think maintaining Russian buy-in is going to be key. Um, you know, I think the question in my mind is how much control do the Russians actually have over things there? Um, I mean, it's it's one of these million-dollar questions. You know, the Russians are not all powerful, so getting them to to try to cooperate is hard enough, but then. There's always the question of how much leverage do they actually have, right? right? And so uh, that's will, this will be the additional test is whether they've got the will to to, to enforce this ceasefire and, and to force their friends to uh, to stand down. But then there's also whether they've got the way, whether they've actually got the ability to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's what I'll be watching for over the next week or so. But 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, we've. The, I've seen this too many times to get to to be uh, again. Be hope, I'm I'm hopeful because I want it. Of course, we want a ceasefire. I'm just not optimistic. It's kind of the the whole Lucy, the Charlie Brown thing, Lucy and the football. Yeah, you know, we've seen this. We've seen them pull the football several times already. So yeah, I mean, ultimately, definitely. Assad is their guy. They want to yep. continue to prop him up, and we don't like Assad, and we don't like ISIS, and it's absolutely it's hard yep. to see how that's a big opening for cooperation. But hope springs eternal. Exactly. Um, the last question I want to ask you is about Afghanistan. Um, yeah. According to the New York Times on Tuesday, Steve Bannon pitched General Mattis on a plan to send the pr- private security firm Blackwater into Afghanistan instead of more U.S. troops. Yeah. This is apparently a way to give Trump more options to keep his promise to f- put America first. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I think this sounds crazy. Uh, Blackwater yeah. was a disaster in Iraq. There was a horrific incident where uh, a dozen plus, I think it was 17 civilians were shot uh, by Blackwater forces. Um, I've seen no evidence that a, using a primate private army saves taxpayers money or be more effective at implementing policy. But you are an expert. Uh, You've probably worked in and around these private security forces and and obviously a lot with U.S. military. What's your take on that story? Well, it's it's kind of hard to know where to begin. I mean, look, on on, on, the most charitable interpretation, which is that, you know, you, as I said, we're going to be in Afghanistan one way or another for a long time, right? And Afghanistan, for folks who've never been, it's an incredibly insecure environment. Uh, And private security contractors are absolutely critical to functioning safely in Afghanistan, whether you're there as a U.S. government official, you're there as a journalist, you're there as an NGO providing development assistance. Uh, There are private security contractors kind of all over the place, right? And, And they keep a lot of people safe, and we and we rely on them. So there's nothing nothing inherently bad about security contract contractors. Um, and the other thing is, like it's it's perfectly fine for a government to have creative ideas to try to explore every option. Um, uh, and and certainly the U.S. military even uses private security contractors because mm-hmm. that's a way that um, it can keep its military footprint. At a minimum, uh, but still be secure enough to be able to do the work. Okay, but the way this is kind of all going down, according to the New York Times, is raises a lot of flags. I mean, clearly, uh, uh, Eric Prince, who used to run Blackwater, uh, now it's, the firm has another name that I'm forgetting. Um, Evil Corp, I think. Something like yeah, that. I forget. I forget what it's called, but it's been. You know, he has a vested interest in having you know, a business interest in having this, uh, you know, be taken over by security contractors. He himself is someone who's, you know, has some, uh, you know, is a political supporter, and uh, there's kind of raises a lot of ethical flags in kind of getting this kind of advice from him. The Steve Bannon role in all of this is very interesting and alarming. Um, you know, much was made by the the quote unquote adults in the. Trump administration, and I use quotes around adults purposely, uh, that, you know, people like Bannon had been banished from the national security decision-making system. Right. Uh, but this suggests that that, you know, is not true. I mean, just obviously. pausing on that, could you imagine David Axelrod walking up to Bob Gates and saying, hey, instead of sending 10,000 Marines to Helmand province, what if we sent it, And Tommy, Blackwater? it's worse than that, because it's not just like a great, you know, hey, I had this idea on my own. It's, hey, I've spent all this time consulting with folks outside of government 
who have a vested financial interest in a certain policy outcome, what right. do you think? Right, right. I mean, it's not just I, I read an interesting you know think tank report and what do you think of this? It it's, was I've actively brought folks from outside of government in who have a vested interest. It's like they had a I mean, contest to solicit the worst possible ideas and this yeah, is where they landed. Yeah, it's not – you know, I can only imagine – what General Mattis's reaction was, was to all this. <laughs> Just get out of I mean, my face. You know, so. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we both landed on uh, probably not a good idea. Um, yeah. Derek, thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks, I know this Tommy. was, this was like the, the craziest day possible to, to have these conversations. And thank you for uh, providing insight, not only to this Russia madness, but all the really, really important things that are happening behind the scenes that are not getting the attention they deserve, like Iraq, Syria, in Afghanistan. So thanks. Yeah, man. no. Well, look, I appreciate you doing it. And it's, it's just a good reminder that the world is not stopping while we sort our shit out. No, it is not. So, is not. you know, it's it's a pretty disturbing time. Yeah, it sure is. And with that, <laughs> thanks, All right. Talk to you thanks, soon. Tommy. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye.